Let's open the Word of God, please, to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at John 2, 1 through 11, but uh, the first passage we'll look at is in chapter 20. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and let's go to to uh, John chapter 20 as we get started here. Yeah, this morning we start a new series in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the seven sign miracles. What does that mean? We'll explain it in the Gospel of John. And the first one is uh, water into wine. We'll talk about that this morning. But first, let's uh, pray for our teachability to God's Word. And uh, as is our custom, it's important for us to continue to pray for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. Okay? And so, uh, Jack Smith, if you would, lead us in opening prayer in that direction. Um, yeah, we're going to look at some signs, okay, gay signs in the Gospel of John, and when you when you look at things that are familiar extra closely, sometimes you'll see things you haven't noticed before. And talking about signs, let me show you some uh, logos you might see on signs that may have some things in them you haven't noticed before. For instance, uh, I'll never forget Jonathan is halfway through his graphic designer curriculum at. Oklahoma State, and he came home and told us, uh, hey, Mom and Dad, have you noticed the arrow in the FedEx sign? Now, this may be old hat for you guys, but I had never noticed that. If you look at that white space between the X, or the E and the X there at the end, there's an arrow there. Had, had you seen that before? So that's intentional. But it's the kind of thing you, you look at that all the time and maybe haven't noticed before. Okay? Uh, Russell, what does LG stand for? Life is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, makes you wonder uh, who, who came up with that. But uh, we actually have an LG refrigerator, and I'd always look at their logo. I just thought it was kind of a schematic, happy face. But in fact, you see right in the middle, that's the that's an L, and then the the larger line that kind of shows part of the face is a G. So you got LG in there, even though it looks like a happy face, and I think both are, are in, you know, designed to be noticed. We maybe don't notice the LG, or at least I didn't. Now, this is the uh, logo from the Cologne, Germany Zoo, which is a very famous zoo. And, uh, you know, you look at that. The first thing you see is an elephant, of course. But what other animals do you see? Yeah. You see a giraffe and a rhino. But there's also another famous... Uh, attraction in Cologne that's world famous that is also highlighted on that. It's not the star. Yeah, it's the church spires there in the cathedral. So the, the point is, these, probably not the Cologne Zoo logo that's not real familiar, but uh, the FedEx and, and the LG uh, logos are things you've probably seen before, but there's actually more there than maybe you'd noticed before. And I think as we go through these seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John, you may see some things uh, in these fairly familiar accounts that you haven't seen before. Okay, you're looking at John chapter 20. And let me start here before I read the purpose statement for the Gospel of John, which is chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Christians believe in Jesus. Christians believe in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And we believe these things because of who he is and what he did and what he will do. And we believe those things primarily because of the New Testament Gospels written by eyewitnesses or people that work closely with eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And the New Testament Gospels tell us that in addition to the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Savior, his resurrection. In addition to that ultimate sign, miracle, that Jesus did hundreds of miracles, uh, events that could not be explained by natural means, supernatural acts that make him unique. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, although they describe generically, Scott, lots of miracles, they zero in and specifically describe a total of 35 specific miracles that Jesus performed plus the ultimate miracle of his resurrection. Uh, and yet John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who was an eyewitness to all of the miracles of Jesus, essentially, and all the 35 that are recorded in the four Gospels, when he writes his Gospels, the fourth and final Gospel, 
as written, he chose to only include seven miracles leading up to the resurrection. Kathy, he's not denying the other ones happened. He's just a purpose-driven writer. John was purpose-driven 1,900 years before Rick Warren had written his book about being purpose-driven. And you see this in the uh, two verses I directed you to earlier, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. The New Testament writers invariably give you a purpose statement. E.D. Hirsch of Yale University calls these intrinsic genre statements. Somewhere in the text of all the New Testament books, there are purpose proposition statements, kind of summarize what they're trying to do. And he hangs his key to his gospel here at the back door. And he says, therefore, many other signs, many other miracles, Jesus also performed in addition to the seven plus the resurrection that I've talked about. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. And John was one of them, so he saw them. But they're not written in this book. But these, the things he's included, including especially those seven sign miracles, have been included and have been written in the text of this larger work, the Gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You might think, what's the big deal? Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, virgin conception, nine months later, Jesus Christ, right? It's not his last name. What does Christ mean? It's a title. What does it mean? Messiah or Savior, right? The the anointed one to solve the sin problem and ultimately to visibly control the universe undeniably. But these have been written. What I've given you in this book is more than sufficient that if you're a seeker of truth, you may believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Um, John could have told you a lot of stuff about Jesus he doesn't include in this gospel. He's being selective, not comprehensive, and none of the four gospels are designed to be um, comprehensive, analytical, 21st century uh, biographies. They're written with a purpose, and John specifically saying, there's a lot of other things I could have told you, but I'm zeroing in on what you need to know to believe in Christ and be saved and to confirm your faith, Christian, as you live your life and the ups and downs of life now. So I want you to see from the get-go that the Gospel of John and these seven signs, uh, Russell, uh, have evangelistic purpose to lead people to faith, and also spiritual life or spiritual growth application as well. So we're going to look at the seven signs. We'll look at the first one today in chapter 2. But first, let's talk about, uh, here's the purpose statement, let's talk about a couple of uh, preliminary things. Number one, what does sign mean? Well, John uses some very specific terminology. The word he uses for signs in describing these miracles is, in the original Greek text, is a word, semeon, that means to point something, actions that point to something greater. You might say the word semeon is uh, referencing miracles with messages. Each sign is a miracle with a message about who Jesus is that people need to know so they can believe in him and receive eternal life and so they can trust in him as believers and proceed in eternal life. So that's kind of a sign uh board sign post along the road there. Think the signs are miracles with a message. As we go through these seven sign miracles, we're going to emphasize not just the fact the miracle happened, but what does each one of those miracles teach us specifically about the person, the mission of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now there are seven such signs, 35 specific ones described in the four gospels, hundreds alluded to. John limits himself, Scott, to only talking about seven He's not denying the other ones happened, but he's focusing on these seven. Water into wine, healing, a remote healing of the royal official son in Capernaum, healing of a paralyzed man, feeding the 5,000, walking on the Sea of Galilee, healing the man born blind in the city of Jerusalem, and then the uh, supernatural resuscitation. He didn't resurrect Lazarus. He would die again, but he supernaturally uh, resuscitated someone who had experienced biological death four days before that. But we're going to look at this first one today, water into wine. 
And it breaks down like this. We're going to look at the setting for this miracle, the status quo, the sign itself, and the significance. And, you know, status quo is a French word that means the mess we's in. Okay? It means uh, the situation. So they have a mess, and it's not a horrible um, spiritual dynamic. It's a social faux pas, and yet Jesus is enough engaged in people's lives, Tom, that when he sees something that's very going to be very embarrassing and something this family might not live down for years, he's willing to, to proceed, but without uh, in any way derailing his purpose, as we'll see. Let's look at the setting. Look at verses 1 and 2, and I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard Bible. Let me get back to chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples, he's only got five disciples at this point, not 12 yet, this is very early in the ministry, were invited to the wedding. This is the third day after the day described at the end of John chapter 1. So let's go back and see what happened on that day. Go back to John chapter 1, verse 35. Now this is after Jesus has been baptized tempted by Satan, and has come back in Judea, the southern region, and is interacting with John the Baptist, who wasn't a Baptist. He was a Jew, okay? Right? Gene, uh, I hadn't seen this yet, but Jack Robbins, uh, in one of his uh, blogs statements recently, said that he quoted something from Spurgeon, and he's he's saying this tongue-in-cheek, but uh, he said, you know, Spurgeon is the greatest Baptist of all time, except for the ultimate Baptist, John the Baptist. Uh, but uh, he's actually a Jewish prophet, but don't tell your Southern Baptist friends that because it ruins the party for him, you know. Uh, again, the next day, Jesus has been interacting uh, with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. What was John's job, basically, Daryl? To, yeah, to, to prepare things for Jesus, to get people prepared to receive the Messiah. The Messiah is is at hand. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, John the Baptist said to uh, his two disciples there, Behold, that's the Lamb of God. That's the guy I baptized. That's the Messiah. That's what I've been talking about. There he is. And the two disciples heard John identify Jesus as Messiah, Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed for our sins, and they followed Jan. They're literally walking after him. When they says they follow him, they literally walk. Jesus is walking down the road, probably praying. And now they're going to come. Of course, he had to stop at the train because when the train comes by, you stop walking and wait and then go on. Now, last Sunday, if you weren't here, about every five minutes we were getting either my phone or somebody's phone was getting these weather alerts. And I was saying, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, it's still raining, but everything's fine. And so we're going to go to Colorado for the week. So we get home, take off our church clothes, put our clothes back on. We get on Highway 7. We're happy. We get almost to Pumpkin Center, and they got a roadblock. You can't go any further. The world ends just beyond this point, you know. So we said, "Hey, no problem. We'll figure out another way." So Debbie said, "Let's go home." I said, "No, we're gonna, we're gonna come up. We're gonna get a machete and hack our way to Highway 40 somewhere, so we can get to uh, uh, Amar- uh, Amarillo and eventually to Colorado." But we made it. But yeah, it was pretty wild with those things going off. But it's funny. I got so off the track last week. I know you won't believe I got off the track. I got so far off the track, I really uh, almost just quit. I almost asked uh, James, just like a tag team, just take over. It was because it was just so discombobulated. But then I listened to that message later, and I thought, you know, it really wasn't as bad as I thought it was. So that was <laughs> that was pretty. That was very encouraging. So anyway, John the Baptist has pointed two of his disciples to Jesus, which is he's happy to do it. That's his job. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and said, "What's up? You know, qué pasa? What's going on? What do you see?" And they said, Rabbi, which translated teacher, where are you going? Where are you staying? You know, in town. And he said, uh, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and he st- and they stayed with him that day for about the tenth hour, several hours in the afternoon they're going to spend together. One of the two who heard John speak, one of the two who heard John the Baptist say, that's the Lamb of God, and followed him was Andrew. Now, who's Andrew? He's a fisherman who's interested in spiritual things, who's taken a leave of absence from work in the north of Galilee to go down to Judea and hear John the Baptist preach. And now John the Baptist has said, that's the Messiah we've all been waiting for. And when Andrew, after interacting with Jesus for several hours, leaves him, 
He's convinced he's the Savior, like John the Baptist said. And look what happens. Verse 41, Andrew physically brings his brother to Christ. Uh, first thing Andrew does after breaking contact with Jesus is find his brother Simon, who's also come down to listen to John preach and to think about who the Messiah might be. And Andrew said to his brother, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, the anointed one, the one who would be the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And he, Andrew, brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, you're Simon, which is a Hebrew for listener. You're, they call you, and he's saying this with a big smile on his face. Forget about the way Max von Sydow persuaded, you know, portrayed Jesus in the greatest story ever told. Thou art Peter, and unto thee I tell thee. You know, he didn't talk King James English. He's talking Aramaic with a smile on his face and a song in his heart. Your name is Simon. They call you listener, right? We both know you're not a very good listener. We're going to call you Rocky. you got a lot of rough edges, and we're going to work them out here, buddy. I'm quite sure you can ask Simon yourself in heaven. That's what he was uh, told. So we got a new nickname. Jesus was a guy who gave people nicknames. They used to make fun of George W. Bush because he gave everybody a nickname. Tiger Woods gives everybody a nickname. Um, there's nothing wrong with nicknames. At least Jesus used them for several of his guys. And here, Simon Listener is called Rocky because he's got some rough edges to work on. Verse 43, the next day after that, he, Jesus, purposed to go back to Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, up by the Sea of Galilee. Philip found Nathanael, who's from Cana, we know, based on chapter 21 of uh, John, and that's important because the wedding feast with the water and wine took place in Cana, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the Old Testament prophets wrote, and is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, Can any good thing, can the Messiah actually come out of Nazareth? I thought he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Nazareth is just a little town, no big deal in Galilee. Uh, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, you're an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. You're a straight shooter. Uh, I like your style. That's basically what Jesus is saying. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Not only do I know you, but earlier uh, today when you were under that fig tree meditating on Scripture, probably Isaiah 53, we can find out in heaven, before Philip called you when you were under that fig tree meditating, praying, I knew you were doing that too. He's just giving him a little insight into his knowledge. And Nathanael answered him, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And I think Jesus, with a big smile on his face, said, That impressed you? You ain't seen nothing yet, buddy. You're going to see resurrection and ascension. Jesus answered and said, Because I knew you were under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see a lot better than that. You kidding? And again, I think he's got a big smile on his face when he sees it. says it. He says, Truly, truly I say to you, you'll see the heavens opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending, Son of Man. That's the ascension. There's lots of big stuff happening. So, go back to chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day after this group, we've got five disciples now. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And Jesus go back to their home base of Galilee in the northern region around the lake. Uh, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Because there's some kind of connection either physical relation or just close friend between Jesus' family and this family that's involved in the wedding. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. You're thinking, well, nowadays you've got to pick out your design for your uh, invitation. Franny, I mean, that takes like six months, right? And you got to mail them and you got to save the date first and all that stuff. They, they flew by the seat of their pants back then. I mean, they actually had to have internet with a landline. This is how bad it was back then. I mean, this was uh, a wedding in a small city like Cana would have been a big community event. This was a small community. Everybody knew everybody else. Everybody watched out for everybody else, even in the community. Anybody's related to anybody is more than welcome to come to these things. It's a huge community event. And so that's why uh, it's not unusual for on the fly. Oh, yeah, the wedding's today. Let's go. Jesus and your five new friends can come along. No problem, that kind of thing. Now, let's put this on the map. Um, that's the strip of land that we call the Holy Land. Even though there's nothing holy about the dirt or the uh, 
molecules there, but the incarnation took place here, so that's pretty important. Sea of, uh, Mediterranean Sea, River Valley, Jordan River Valley, there's the uh, Sea of Galilee, the northern region is called Galilee, the southern region is called Judea, uh, John the Baptist and the interaction of chapter 1 is down here, but the wedding feast is going to be in a little town called Cana, which is just north and a little bit east of Nazareth. Why is Nazareth important? That's where Joseph and sons had their carpentry, carpentry business, right? That's where Jesus grew up. But now he's in the very first phases of his public ministry. But he comes back to his home region, and they're going to be, go to a wedding. Now, when we hear, go to a wedding today, and we have weddings, and then we have wedding receptions, right? And sometimes the wedding reception is at a different location, okay? Now, uh, they told us in seminary, Write down every wedding you do and every baptism you do because you're going to get so old doing these things you'll forget who you married and who you baptized. And, of course, I didn't do that. So uh, I can't remember every baptism and every wedding, but I do remember Franny's wedding. Uh, you know, anytime it's outside in October makes me nervous, but, boy, the Lord blessed us with a beautiful day, fantastic wedding. And then a, a, just a beautiful scene and, a, and a, you know, kind of a venue for the wedding and the reception. But today we make a distinction between the wedding ceremony, which is usually in a church, but sometimes it's right outside of a church, right, Savannah, right? It can be anywhere. And then the reception is usually on site, but not necessarily, but they're two separate things. Well, the wedding here they're talking about, Scott, isn't the ceremonies, the wedding feast, okay? The, the wedding would have been a private thing. Just a few handful of people be for the vows. But now we've got a big community event and all the relatives. And Mary's there, which means she's either a really tight friend with the mother or the bride or the groom or probably related distantly. And Jesus and the five disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are all there in Cana. This is a real place. You can ask Homer. He's been there. Uh, they built, they built a church on top of the traditional site, the house where the epicenter of the wedding feast was. That may or may not be the exact location, but it's it's interesting to consider as the inside of it. Uh, and when you go into that church off to the side, you can look at the archaeology they're doing on the house that traditionally is understood to be the site of this uh, miracle. Now, when we think of water pots, we're going to look at water pots that Jesus has filled and then turns into wine. We tend to think of little pots that people drank out of, but the actual water pots that are referenced here are really big. And even the text tells you 20 or, you know, was it 20 or 30 gallons apiece? Uh, and these things are, were not used for drinking water. They were used for ceremonial washings, uh, according to the oral law that had been added to the Old Testament scripture. And, you know, a picture like that shows you how little those pots are compared to those men. That shows you a big pot, but it's not a good picture because you have no, nothing to, uh, refer it to, right? But let's put Julie Miller there. How tall is Julie Miller? She's like eight foot tall, right? Yeah, she's three feet. She's five and five six. Okay, she's not gigantic. She's five feet tall, but that's a pretty big pot. Okay. Now, if you you got to realize all these uh, biblical locations, uh, you know, people have to make a living, and so uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, you can buy Cana wine. It was, you know, it wasn't supernaturally uh, created, but like this stuff that we're going to read about. But you can buy it there if you want to. I think Homer bought some. Um, you can buy souvenirs. Uh, there's actually a couple of different shops called the First Miracle Shop. This is the First Miracle Wine Shop and Souvenir uh, Shop. Uh, right down the street, there's the First Miracle Souvenir and Coffee Shop, which is different. And Cana wedding wine. And then my favorite was the Cana Steakhouse. Okay. But that's the uh, the setting of the wedding. Now, let me say a couple more things about that. Notice it says Jesus and the disciples are invited. Mormonism claims, well, let me ask you. Who do you think Mormon theology says is the groom of this wedding? And this would have been his first of many. This was Jesus' first wedding. Isn't it a little weird to invite the groom to the wedding? I mean, I only got married once, but I didn't get a wedding invitation. It was probably, I just, my mother-in-law just assumed I'd show up, you know? So I don't think you invite the groom to the wedding, and it doesn't mention it, because they're reading that into that. 
But here's the thing. A wedding like this is a huge community event, uh, wedding feast. And it's not just a two-hour reception like we tend to have. This thing could last for days and days as long as a week. Uh, and everybody in town would come, and everybody in the region is related or distantly related, or their friends or relative would probably show up. But here's the thing. Um, what do you do at wedding receptions then and now, typically? You eat. You drink refreshments, and you just kind of chat with people. You kind of chill out, and a lot of small talk. And you see a lot of people you don't typically see, and so you just kind of yuck it up and have a good time. Uh, you don't sit down and have deep theological discussions about the hypostatic union or the order of decrees, do you? Are you a superlapsarian? You know, you don't get into that. Uh, what's your eschatology these days? Are you amillennial or what? You know, you don't talk about stuff like that. You just kind of talk about what's going going on and and just kind of shop talk and small talk. And yet Jesus, Redina, is right in the middle of this. Some super spiritual people think stuff like that's kind of frivolous and a waste of time. But, you know, people are relational and they're social, and that's an important part of life. Tom Constable's commentary says that Jesus received an invitation to a wedding feast and accepted it shows he was not a recluse. He participated in the normal affairs of human life. Uh, this includes occasions of rejoicing and fun, like a wedding reception. Godliness does not require a hermit-like separation from human society. You know, in the 1960s, the saying was, uh, if it feels good, do it. Very destructive way to live your life. But a lot of evangelical Christians reacted to that by going to the other extreme. It feels good, don't do it. Feelings are not as important as facts, okay? We live our lives based on facts, use our emotions as appreciators, but just because something's fun or enjoyable doesn't make it evil, okay? Uh, Tom likes OU football. I like OSU football. And like every 10 years or so, we beat you people. <laughs> and we really enjoy it. When that happens, right? We really enjoy it. And I think if the Lord uh, was alive today, he would be an OSU fan. <laughs> uh, he's alive, but down here. Okay. Let's look at the status quo, the mess we's in. We have a problem. Well, this is written is almost nonchalant, but this would have been a huge uh, social faux pas, big problem. Uh, when the wine ran out, after the wine ran out, shock of shocks, nightmare scenario. This ain't supposed to happen under any circumstances. Somebody goofed. The mom of the bride, the father of the groom, the caterer, somebody has messed up big time. And this is a big problem. Uh, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, who's, uh, like I said, close enough to the uh, people involved that she's kind of helping make things happen, said to him, they have no wine. That sounds like a statement of fact, but it's a command, okay? If, uh, if you deal with your mother or your wife regularly, you will find out. Sometimes they will give you statements that are actually commands. And a big part of uh, getting along with your mom and your wife is realizing that, right? Okay, you're going to have to learn that, Russell. Okay, Scott already knows that, trust me. Uh, uh, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? He's using an idiom there we need to explain. My hour has not yet come. Uh, when the wine ran out, shock of shocks, big time problem. This would be like running out a wedding cake at a wedding reception today. That just can't happen. <clears throat> Janice is back helping with the super summer people. But I mean, when you sell wedding cakes... That's bad, too. You, you don't want them to ever run out of wedding cake. In fact, you want them to buy a little bit more than they need, right, Kathy, because you're selling it? Uh, I hope my uh, sister doesn't listen to this tape because uh, when we did my uh, nephew's wedding last October in, in Texas, um, the, the wedding cake ran out, and it was a problem, you know, especially for me because I like cake. But uh, we're getting over it. But this would have been a big problem. Now, she says they have no wine, which means... Uh, you need to do something about that, and really quick. And I'm convinced this is a command from a mother's heart with two motivations. Number one, she doesn't want the embarrassment to continue for her friend or relative. Number two, she's a mama, and she can. Mary knows Jesus is the Messiah. Mary knows Jesus is the Son of God. How does she know that, David? 
virgin birth, little things like that. There's no doubt in her mind who Jesus is. And she also knows that he has gone south, been identified with John the Baptist, who was the, who was the prophet who was going to point to the Messiah. So he knows, she knows he's gone down and been baptized and identified with him. And John said, that's the Lamb of God, that Jesus has gone one-on-one with Lucifer and knocked him out of the park. And now Jesus has come back home with five disciples. And she's thinking, you know what? What my kid really needs to do to get his ministry rolling is some big miracle, and this would be perfect. Because we're out of wine, and I'm not sure how he's going to do it, but he needs to supply the need, and it'll be a big showy thing, and everybody here in Cana will understand who he is, and it'll be a great way for him to do his grand opening of his ministry. So she's nudging him to meet a real social need, but more importantly in her mind, he she wants him to do a miracle to get his ministry rolling. She doesn't think he's you know, been bombastic enough at this point. Now, I think it's easy to to read, especially in the King James, uh, the words can be so dry on the page, and it sounds almost rude. Uh, Gune there, translated woman, can be translated like ma'am. It wouldn't have been like a rough expression. He's being respectful, but he's also aware of his purpose. Talking about purpose-driven, Jesus is purpose-driven, as I'll show you in a second. Uh, they have no wine, do something about it, what she's saying. And he says to her, Gune, ma'am, mom, what does that have to do with us? Literally in the Koine Greek, he says, what is that to me and to you? Now that's an idiom. I didn't say idiot, I said idiom. Idioms are expressions in languages that have non-literal but understood meanings. So if we talk about last last Sunday at about 9.30, it was raining cats and dogs here, wasn't it? It, it was running, raining so hard, a lot of people had to leave at 9.30 to make sure they get back home because of the rain, right? Uh, if somebody said, if the Bible used that expression, it's raining cats and dogs, Richard Dawkins would say, see, those people were so stupid, they thought small mammals came out of the sky when it rained. No, you're, you're stupid. You're misunderstanding the idiom. For him to say, Mom, what is that to me and to you is an idiom meaning uh, what the situation here means to you is different than what it means to me. We're not on the same page here, Mom. Okay, I get it that your best friends are going to be embarrassed. I, I'm going to help with that, but I'm not going to do a big bombastic miracle now because I know more about how to start my ministry than you do. And I know that the best way to start my ministry with visible miracles isn't in Cana, but it's in Jerusalem. And I'm just about to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, as the rest of the chapter talks about. And I'm going to start, I'm going to have my grand opening for my ministry, not behind the backs of the Sanhedrin and the high priest and the temple establishment. I'm going to go right in front of the temple and have my grand opening out of respect for their position, because that's the way I'm going to start it. That's how I'm going to do my visible, first visible big ministries, my uh, mayons to tell everybody I'm here, I'm the Messiah. But you'll notice he is going to deal with the problem. So he's basically saying, I hear, I feel your pain, and I'm going to help you, but I'm going to do it in a way that actually is consistent with my purposes, with my father's will. So he's kind of in an interesting position. He's got to respect his human mother, but remain on track with his heavenly father. And it wouldn't be right for the Messiah to do his first big visible uh, bombastic billboard kind of announcement of his ministry in Cana of Galilee. He needs to go down to Jerusalem, and that's what he's going to do. And yet he does, doesn't say, this isn't important. This isn't anything about eternal life or, or spirituality. This is just a social thing. This is just a wedding reception. Who cares? You know, it is important. Those things are important. Um, you know, um, Brad Allen's the one who said, uh, after 50 years of being in the ministry, I still love weddings. Long pause. It's the rehearsals I can't stand. And, you know, uh, I, I know what he means. Because some of these rehearsals, you know, look like World War Three. You know I mean? It's unbelievable. Um, but uh, I figured out a long time ago, uh, and I tell brides this, let's go over what you want. So when we go to the rehearsal, because sometimes you go to these rehearsals and you've got a cousin from Utah, who they haven't seen, he's the crazy cousin from Utah, who comes in and he's half drunk, and then you've got somebody else, you know, from Comanche, 
And they've got a whole different conception for this thing than the bride has and the bride's mother. And to me, uh, I'm going to make sure they make biblical vows to one another, and I will sign the paperwork after it's over, the license. But all I'm worried about in those receptions is, number one, that I get the bride and groom's name correct. That's number one. Just let you know. And make sure the bride and the bride's mother's happy with the, with the ceremony. That's the, those are the only two that count for me. Okay? And maybe if the groom's mother is bigger than me, we'll pack her hair in. <laughs> but in the things you think about. Yeah. But, but so notice the Lord doesn't just go, no big deal. It's no, this has no eternal, uh, amp, you know, ramifications. He doesn't say that, does he, Kathy? He actually gets in, kind of feels their pain and says, okay, I'm going to deal with it, mom. Don't worry. But I'm not going to do it the way you expect me to. I, I know how to start my ministry just as good, really better than you do. So that's what's going on there. Now let me say this about wine. Okay. You got to interpret, when we talk about Asia in the Bible, we're not talking about China and India. We're talking about the westernmost little chunk of what we call Turkey today because that's what the Romans called Asia. When we talk about Phoenix in the book of Acts, we're not talking about Arizona. We're talking about a little port on Crete, okay? You got to interpret the Bible in the time which it was written. Wine in the Bible, uh, wasn't, uh, kind of what you would buy today in a liquor store. Wine was more of a water purification thing than an intoxication thing. And wine in New Testament times, uh, Edersheim writes about this, Josephus writes about this, uh, would typically be one part wine, nine parts water for normal family use, one-tenth dilution, ten times dilution, nine times dilution, one part wine, uh, nine parts water for... Uh, Boom. Uh, that'd be for family drinking, so you wouldn't be drinking water that's going to get you sick. Uh, the kind of wine they're using here would have been one part wine, four parts water. Okay, That was that. So you would have had to drink so much, you would have had to go to the bathroom four times or three times before you'd get drunk or even buzzed, probably. So this wasn't designed for intoxication. Anything uh, less watered down than that, and certainly not watered down, was called strong drink in the Old Testament. Warned against, big trouble, kings and prophets were Forbidden from drinking strong drink, period. We're under the New Covenant, but we'll say more about that in a minute. But this wine wouldn't have been exactly what you'd buy in a liquor store. It would have been watered down a little bit. Uh, for, And that's just the, the reality you need to know. So, I mean, Baptists want to make this water into Kool-Aid, which technically isn't a miracle. But some people want to say, well, Jesus changed water into wine. Let's uh, have a beer bust, you know, after church today. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, why that would be a bad idea. Look at verses 5 through 10. Here's the sign. Here's the miracle. Notice uh, just how subtle uh, he is in this. She picks up that he's going to do something, but different than the way she anticipated. So she looks at the servants, the caterers, and says, whatever he says to you, you do it. Okay. Now, there were six stone water pots, about five foot tall. At least the, the one we saw in Cana was that big set up for Jewish custom of purification, not drinking, but purification ritual purposes, uh, containing 20, 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots, the ceremonial hand and uh, washing pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. John saw this. He's pointing that out, so there's no room for adding anything. Uh, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Problem solved. Okay, he does a miracle but there's no incantation, no magic word, no bombastic declaration. He just does it so subtly because he's not wanting to get his uh, uh, grand opening in Cana. He's going to start doing signs that will be referred to and talked about all over the country in Jerusalem in the next later part of this chapter. But boom, fill it up with water. Now just draw it out and let the, the head waiter check it out and make sure it's okay. So they took it, uh, he said, draw some now, take it out to the head waiter. So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water, you know, this guy must have, hey, Daryl, you know that situation we were talking about before church? This head waiter is probably like that guy. He probably would have been cussing, screaming, upset if he found out they'd run out of wine. So they haven't told him yet, you know, <laughs> so he doesn't even know. And so when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, but done so subtly, you wouldn't have noticed unless you just actually had been in the room, uh, didn't know where it came from. But the servants who drawn the water knew. 
The head waiter called the bridegroom, who's apparently supposed to pay the bill. I think now the the uh, family of the bride pays for the reception, right? But that's not a Bible verse. You, you know, just go with the flow. Go with the custom of whatever country you live in, okay? Um, and he said to him, wow, you know, just about everybody else will serve the uh, one part, five part, or maybe if they're really exotic, one part, two part uh, you know, wine, wine to water, uh, the good stuff first, and after their taste buds kind of get satiated with a couple, then they bring out the weak stuff or the poor stuff. But you've kept the best, the good stuff, until now. Uh, now, there's a lot of mileage for preaching on that. Like I say, when Jesus does it, he does the best. Of course, when Jesus does it, he does the best. What's the deal? But people will preach on that for 30 minutes. I do feel like, uh, as Christians, we, we need to give our best effort to everything we do, but we also need to prioritize what we're doing because you don't have enough time or energy to do everything. So, uh, you know, I think you can push anything to extreme. Some people want to be so good at X, they have so much, so much time for that, they don't have time for other things like interacting with their families and things like that. So you've got to watch out for that. So, of course, the superior quality of wine uh, is consistent with Jesus as the one who just created it as an act of a uh, uh, someone with the attributes of God. Uh, they fill the pots with water, boom, pull it out, it's wine, no big deal. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He's trying to meet the need as subtly as possible. But the servants know, and John, who apparently was watching this, saw it as well. Uh, this is a miracle, uh, H2O to C2H6O, is a miracle of transformation, of creation. I'm not a chemist, Jack is. He could probably tell you, you know, about the different chemical bonds between those two molecules, and you can't just pour something into a pot and have it be H2O and instantly change into C2H6O. I guess that's the formula. I'm not a chemist, but that's what some graphic uh, said, so I kind of uh, pasted it on top of that other graphic that I liked. But for sure, this was a miracle of creation or transformation, and I want you to notice something that's interesting. Supernatural creation always involves the appearance of age. Okay. Now, I'm not an expert on wine making, but I do know you have to have a uh, a grapevine, and I know it takes probably years to get grapes that grow that are the type that you need for wine. So it takes a couple of years to do that, and then you got to wait for the white time to pick the, the grapes off the vine, and then you got to remove the juice from the grapes, right? And then you got to put that grape juice in some kind of container and add some other ingredients, and you wait months or years, and then you maybe you get a good wine. Uh, so it takes a long time to get wine, right? Well, on this occasion, Jesus has them fill the water pots with H2O. He says, okay, now serve it. Make sure it's good enough for the head waiter. And it's just an instantaneous act of transformation, of creation. You'd have to have the attributes of God to do something like this. And so when Richard Dawkins says, "I, you know, this thing cannot be reproduced in a laboratory. That's the point, okay? This is the point. This happened once. This isn't saying that Derek hasn't, if he has enough faith, he can do this, uh, at all. This is not designed to be reproduced in any laboratory. It couldn't be. It's a supernatural thing, uh, that only Jesus could do. But yeah, if you were just the head waiter and he tastes that thing, what do you say about it when he drank it? That's really, really good stuff. What would he have assumed about the age of the pro, of the process that would have taken to produce that liquid in that cup? Would have taken years, right? That would be the assumption, okay? Did Adam have a belly button? Did Adam have a belly button? I think he did. Yeah. Those trees in that garden have rings in them? Yeah, right? So supernatural creation always has the appearance of age. That's kind of an interesting thing. Now let's talk about um, Christians and wine drinking and all that stuff. If Jesus created wine, it's okay for me to get drunk. No, it's not. In fact, you know, within the clear direct commands of scripture, we have kind of a rectangle of Christian uh, activity that's permitted. And then within that area, we're supposed to wisely hammer out specific convictions based on general principles. It's always outside that oval to lie, steal, murder, fornicate, etc., etc. But inside that oval of Christian behavior, we make choices, and we have a lot of general commands we're supposed to apply specifically. So, you know, in my day, uh, I grew up in the Southern Baptist culture in Florida and Alabama, 
And we weren't allowed to go to bowling alleys or skating rinks. Okay? Which was probably a wise principle because people were doing bad things like smoking and things like that at skating rinks <laughs> and uh, bowling alleys. Even though there is no verse that says thou shalt not smoke a cigarette, I'm not sure it's a, a sin to smoke one cigarette. I would just say, based on what we know about uh, the dangers of oral cancer and lung cancer, which are horrible ways to die, uh, and the direct link between that, I think it would be really foolish and a waste of time and money. But Gene, you trusted Christ as your Savior as a smoker. Sometimes people say, can I be a smoker and still go to heaven? Yeah, you know, if you believe in Jesus... Uh, you can smoke and go to heaven. In fact, you probably go quicker than the, the non-smoker. You know? Uh, but I mean, that, that, there's no direct command, thou shalt not smoke. There's no direct command that says, thou shalt not drink anything that's been fermented. They're drinking fermented wine. It has been diluted, one to two or, or one to four for sure. But how, how do you operate in areas like, is it okay for Christians to go to bowling alleys, to, to movies? The, the one I like to use is movies. The, the issue that's talked about in Romans uh, 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 that talks about this principle within the bounds of Scripture when you've got to make specific choices that aren't mandated by Scripture, what do you do? The example they use, as James knows, is the issue of meats offered to idols because in that culture you couldn't get meat in a big city that hadn't been offered to a Greco-Roman god. And some Christians say, I'm not going to eat any meat because it was offered up at an idol uh, worship uh, situation in the temple. And other Christians said, there's, there's no spiritual cooties in that meat. I'm going to eat it. So the Christians disagreed about that. And Paul says, hey, you know what? It's okay to disagree. What you need to do is hammer out your own personal convictions and to boil it down and it'll go from meats to maybe movies and or wine drinking. I'd say there's two things you need to know. Number one, within the bounds of Scripture, not violating any direct commands as you're seeking to abide in Christ and glorify Him as a Christian, number one, hammer out your own convictions in these areas that aren't mandated by Scripture and live your liberty, but only if involvement in whatever you're doing, going to the skating rink, going to the movie, uh, eating a meat offered to idols, um, whatever, only if involvement in that area will not control you. You know, all things are, are lawfully says, but I'm not going to let anything master me. So sometimes, some of these areas of liberty, some people can't handle them if they indulge in them, so they're not supposed to do them. So that's, that's number one. Second principle, limit your liberty in love. If, um, if I, you know, if, if um, I told you a story about a TBF for many years ago that was upset about us using some worship music with a beat. And uh, he didn't talk to me on a Sunday, but the first time we had a particular song that had kind of had an up-tempo thing, he sat down with me later, and his heart was broken because he thought listening to Christian music with a beat was inherently evil because Bill Gothard told everybody, hey, clear as day in Scripture, music with a beat's evil, you know. And this guy's messing around with women, but there's nothing about music with a beat in Scripture, but everybody went, oh, yeah, okay, he said it, so he's got to be right. Which it wasn't. But um, this this guy who was talking to me, his heart was broken. He was convinced we were like denying the deity of Christ because we had an up-tempo song. And I said, hey, his name was Dan. Boar is his name. Not making these things up. Um, I usually don't tell you who the names are. And I know you're thinking, it didn't really happen. He's making it up. But I mean, I don't make mine up. But uh, I said, hey, Dan, I feel your pain. And tell you what, I'm not, because I can tell it's breaking your heart. I'm going to ask our worship guy not to sing that song anymore. But let me tell you what. I don't think there's anything wrong with that song. I mean, look at the message, okay? I, I think you're you're wrong. In my opinion, you're wrong saying certain beats are inherently evil. So I'm not going to limit what we can do based on what I think is your conviction, which is stricter than Scripture. You're entitled to your your, your opinion about that, and I respect that. And so because that particular song was really odious to you, I'm not going to do it anymore, Okay. But I'm not going to allow you to enslave me to your stricter than scripture convictions, okay? So, you know, hammer out your, your own convictions about wine drinking. We're going to use that here. Now realize the wine they're drinking is watered down, but hammer out your own convictions. I'm a happy teetotaler, okay? Happy, happy teetotaler. I only drink stuff that's good for you, like Coke Zero. I keep reading about aspartame, and you know, it's probably going to kill you, you know? Tumors growing out your ears and stuff. 
But hammer out your own convictions in areas of liberty, but don't flaunt your liberty in ways that cause others to stumble. I could see this was really a problem for him. So rather than cramming it down his throat, I said, hey, I'm not... I'm not going there. You don't like that song? I think it's fine, but I'm not going to go there. So that's the and that, that's the deal. Now let me warn you: Facebook can be addictive. If you're spending 18 hours a day with your friends on Facebook that you'll never meet, and your wife doesn't remember your name because she hasn't seen you in so long, that I'd say that's a problem. That's the letting something control you. But more than that, I think a lot of times, not all of our evangelical Christian friends understand these principles. Nobody teaches these anymore because preachers are afraid you're going to go nuts if we tell you, you know, you can hammer out your own convictions on some of these things. But I just tell you what the Bible says and see what happens. And boy, it's fun to watch, I tell you, (laughs) sometimes. But uh, I wouldn't get on Facebook and brag about, yeah, we went to that cool Christian concert in Dallas and I drank two highballs and, you know, uh, and it didn't affect me a bit. You know, if you're hammering out a conviction that you can drink... Uh, with a meal or something, and not intoxication we're talking about, whatever. But you know that's a problem for other people. It's a problem for other people that can't control it because they've got a genetic disposition to it. Or somebody like me uh, that is a, is a teetotaler, I wouldn't brag about it on Facebook myself. That's just me. Uh, hey, I lost 5,000 in Vegas this weekend, but boy, we had fun. Uh, there's no verse that says you can't go to a casino. Okay, just, really the biggest gamble is driving to the, the casino, as Bob used to say. The biggest danger in a airplane trip was driving to the airport. But if you're burning big money, I wouldn't brag about it. Because I think it would, uh, it might encourage somebody who's on the fence to violate their own conscience and or, uh, it's just a waste of time, a waste of money there. Or, uh, but I, I think Kurt calls it, uh, profitable entertainment. But you gotta, you gotta stop before it becomes very non-probable entertainment, right? Uh, there's this group of young Christian pastors that are five-point Calvinists. They call themselves young, restless, and they're formed. And they think people like me are really dangerous uh, because I don't buy a lot of their stuff on their super lapsarianism and stuff. But uh, And they like to brag about smoking cigars. There's no verse that says you can't smoke a cigar uh, guess what? I've, I've smoked fewer cigars than I have drank alcohol. Like I don't, I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke cigars. Uh, I'm not sure there's a verse that says, thou shalt not smoke a cigar. Back in the old days, when the babies were born, you passed out cigars. I guess we're so healthy now. What do you pass out now? Uh, carrot sticks or something? Uh, which is better for you. But, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you're gonna enjoy your liberty in areas that are controversial like that, it could actually cost somebody to be influenced, to violate their conscience based on your example, or just would unnecessarily scandalize somebody else, you don't flaunt it. You know, you don't rub their face in it. You don't brag about it. Uh, get on Facebook and talk about how great Cuban cigars are. Isn't it great that Obama went to Cuba and now we can get the cigars we need, you know? Young, restless, and reformed. They're smoking cigars after Bible study. Not my thing. I understand what they think they're doing. I think they're probably violating rule two. So bottom line is, enjoy your Christian liberty, but do not destroy others or yourself by doing so. Okay? The setting status quo signs significance. He tells you what the significance of this is. Verse 11, the beginning, this beginning of his signs, he's going to tell you about seven of them. Here's the first one, Russell. Is water and wine very subtly done, as we noted? But recorded, so 2,000 years later we're talking about it. Jesus did. It just flat happened in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory, manifested his deity. You'd have to be God to create a carbon atom or several of them and bond them in that particular way, which is what he did. And his disciples believed in him. Uh, that's a, a constitutive heiress believed. They, they believed in him earlier in chapter 1. All five of these guys are believers, but this means they're either even more firmly convinced. They're, they've been uh, fully convinced in their faith because of who Jesus is and what he's doing to confirm those things, okay? So when you see that word glory there, I would capitalize the G. Uh, he did a miracle only God could do. He's God in the flesh. He's the God, man, Savior. Okay, take this to heart. Through this first sign miracle in the Gospel of John, changing water into wine, we have the Lord Jesus demonstrating his supernatural power over creation, over chemistry, uh, but in a way that honored both his human mother and his heavenly father and kept him on track 
for his purposes in ministry. When you think about creation and transformation, uh, I put those parallel lines. I'm, I'm always thinking of, from a theological point of view, uh, as Homer said once, one of the greatest miracles, when somebody was saying, you know, you guys don't pray right at TBF, uh, when you're convicting, when you're complaining about other people's prayers, I mean, really? But yeah, we had, we had a guy who sat us down and tried to convince us we weren't praying correctly. But anyway, uh, I think we pray okay, but, um, uh, Homer said, well, you know, there's not enough miracles going on here. Well, you know, that miracle of, virgin, uh, of uh, spiritual birth, people believing and be, being saved is really a big miracle. you got to realize that. So don't take that uh, for granted. But here's the thing that, uh, that I take away from this as a believer. Uh, Jesus is confronted, approached by his mom and says, they've run out of wine, meaning you need to do something. And... I don't think she means, you know, run back home to Nazareth and, and bring some wine back. I think she wants him to do something supernatural because the need is there, and she wants him to do something big to kick start his ministry. And he's going to meet the need, but not in a way she anticipated. And here's the principle. We see this a lot. To truly be like Jesus, Christians must do the right thing the right ways. And I think one reason a lot of American culture is afraid of us is because we tend to do the right thing in dumb ways. <laughs> We do the right thing in hateful ways. We do the right things at the wrong time. Uh, I told you about the time when there was still a bookstore downtown in the room that used to be Paula's Attic downtown. Many years ago now, I was in there in the Christmas season, and they had Christmas carols playing in the background of the Christian bookstore. And there was a lot of people in that store, which there was never anybody there. And that particular day, a pretty well-known Christian lay lady uh, walks in there, and within five minutes, she's yelling and screaming about, I can't believe you're playing jingle bells in here. I'm too, I'm too holy to listen to jingle bells. We need to have a Christmas carol that talks about Jesus. I get it. You know, I prefer theologically the songs that talk about Jesus. But do you really want to pitch a fit in a Christian bookstore because they've got a Muzak version of jingle bells and we wonder why unbelievers are afraid of us? That may be one of the reasons. I think we've got to pick our battles do the right thing at the right time. I'll end with this. Christianity is not just behavior modification. Now, you can do that to a dog. You know, you put a collar on them, you push the button at the right time, you can teach them not to cross certain lines. You can actually train them. Behavior modification. I, I'm tempted to do that with certain people in, in this room, but I, I won't do it. <laughs> uh, but that's not what we're about. We're not about behavior modification. We're about spiritual transformation and character development. I mean, behavior modification is external. The dog won't cross the line because he doesn't want to get shocked to death, right? Uh, if my wife kicked me every time I said something stupid, you know, I'd probably be walking with a limp right now, you know? Uh, but that's external. You can do that to people. You can force them you know, to do things against their will. Transformation comes from the inside out, and that's what Jesus does. He changes his water from the inside out to wine. He'll change you. He'll change me. Uh, First, when we come to faith and trust him as our Savior. Second, when as believers we abide in him and we grow in him and we allow his life to live out through us. And, you know, we're told we've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live in the life I live. I live in and for uh, Christ Jesus who saved me. So uh, let's allow him to transform the water of our lives into wine, as it were. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to realize that these signs in the book uh, of John are real, historical, supernatural events that confirm the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not, from the depth of their heart, looked with the eyes of faith at the person of Jesus and trusted in him with their whole heart. Let them see they have a spiritual need. Let them see that Jesus is the Savior Let them see the resurrected Christ offers eternal life to all who would trust in him. Uh, For many of us, most of us, we're believers, uh, and yet there's a lot of areas in our lives, in our souls, that need to be transformed. Uh, And the same Jesus who transformed water into wine, as we abide in him, can transform our lives. Just like he made Peter from a very rough, rugged kind of an individual to an amazingly spiritual person who writes First uh, and Second Peter. And when you read these uh, amazing things Peter says in those books, you can't believe an untaught Galilean fisherman could come up with these concepts. So all of us need a lot of transformation. We all have areas of weakness, 
and special temptation. I pray especially as we apply these Christian principles of spiritual liberty. Help us to enjoy our liberty and realize just because something's fun or exciting doesn't make it evil, but we have to control it. We have to uh, never flaunt our liberty or use it in a way that could be misunderstood or that might incite others uh, to wrong actions and attitudes. So we really need your help to see and do that. I thank you for each one who's here, and I pray that uh, you continue to work through the building for the rest of the morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.